Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John in the 14th chapter. A few verses. A few minutes. We are at verse 15. I'll read through verse 18. It's all we want for this morning. John chapter 14 at verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father. And he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Amen Amen and amen. Wonderful verses by the Lord Jesus Christ to comfort his apostles who were scared and troubled because he was leaving them. In verse 1 of this chapter, it says, let not your heart be troubled. Speaking to the 11. In verse 27, it says, let not your heart be troubled. Speaking to the 11. Neither let it be afraid. They were afraid and troubled because they had had Jesus with them for three and a half years. They were uneducated fishermen, and now they were going to be left on their own without the Lord Jesus Christ? That was a scary proposition. And they were troubled by it. And so Jesus is comforting them, and he's been comforting them. And these are words of comfort as the Lord moves to a new argument, a new way of reasoning with them to comfort them. If you love me, keep my commandments. He's not talking to sinners. He's talking to the best he has on earth, the 11 apostles. And he mentions this quite a bit here. It's in verse 15. It's in verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. It's in verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words. It's in verse 24. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. It's in verse 31. As the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. So there's a lot of emphasis here to his 11 that loving him and loving God is keeping their commandments. Should be obvious to us. Love here is not the way that we define love toward each other. When we love each other, the way the Bible teaches us to, it's desiring the well-being of another person so that they can stand perfect before God. But that's not the love that's here. This is the love of God. The love of God is taught throughout Scripture, and it's mixed with, and it's joined to, the fear of God. Because the fear of God and the love of God are, are similar in that we don't want to displease God. We want to do anything we can to make Him happy, to find His favor and approval upon us by pleasing Him. And, and so... The Lord Jesus is telling them, if you love me, if you really care about me, and you want to please me, then keep my commandments. Do a whole lot more than just feel sorry that I'm going away. And and tell me, oh, I'm going to miss you so much, Lord. I don't need that sentimental drivel. I would like you to keep my commandments. Because they were troubled about it. They were worried about, where is he going? Why can't we go with you? When can we go with you? Where are you going? How are you going there? What is the way? What is the destination? And the Lord's just cutting all that off. Don't worry about it. I'm leaving you here. I'm leaving. 
I'll take care of you. I will not leave you comfortless. But if you love me, keep my commandments. Don't just feel sorry that I'm leaving and don't feel lonely. Keep my commandments is what the exhortation is. How do we know David loved God? By his obsessive desire to honor and worship God with others in public, costing him dearly. None of those things mattered to him because the worship of God mattered to him. As we heard last night, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. And, and David did that. Jesus knew that his apostles loved him, but he pressed them to the application of love and putting it into practice. He's going to examine Peter in just a few days and ask Peter, Simon, lovest thou me? He's going to ask him three times, lovest thou me? More than these, lovest thou me? Then he's going to tell him to do something. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. If you love me, Peter, do something. Don't just have sentimental feelings. There's too much of that going on in religious circles today. There's such a thrust in certain circles with Roman Catholic meditation. Of course, the Roman Catholics that write the books on meditation don't always tell you up front that they're Roman Catholics so that the evangelicals will sell them in their bookstores about meditating on Jesus and opening your mind up to Jesus. Well, you don't know what Jesus is going to come in when you do that. That is not, the Bible doesn't tell you to do that. This is Jesus in the Bible. You haven't met him other than the Bible and the Holy Spirit of God who wrote the Bible. And so we want to be careful and we want to do things the way the Lord does. And when he says, if you love me, he doesn't say go off to a retreat somewhere and sit out in the woods cross-legged and stare at the clouds. He says, keep my commandments. Because he had things for them to do. There's much more to love than even the sentimental loss that the apostles were feeling at Jesus leaving them. Keep my commandments. Don't weep and tell me how much you're going to miss me. Keep my commandments. This is such an obvious point of truly desiring to love and please someone that's in authority. You want to do what they tell you to do. That's how children honor and obey their parents. Is to keep their parents' commandments. Children, obey your parents the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, closely joined together. They're not the same thing, but one of the ways that we one of the ways in which we do honor our parents is to obey them. Many today are confused by feelings about Jesus from loud music and sob stories. You know, we didn't hear sob stories last night. We had we heard praise of the Lord Jesus Christ for saving sinners. But uh, if you thump the right music long enough, and it doesn't take but a few minutes to thump the right music loud enough. It will stroke your little spleen until you're feeling the love of Jesus. But that isn't what the Bible teaches anywhere. This is the love of Jesus right here. And when he's in his final hours and he's with his best men, this is how he speaks to them. And I just showed you it's in 15, 21, 23, 24, and 31 before we can get out of chapter 14. Keeping his commandments as the evidence of love and the application of love. This point... Loving obedience, even for apostles, was important. With context as our master, and it always is, the obedience here is connected to Holy Spirit comfort. Because the very next verse is, and I will pray the Father. If you love me, men, I'm about to leave, but if you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll take care of you with another comforter. You'll have personal presence of God with you, but I need you 
keeping my commandments. So let's get started with the right way Jesus said to them. No man should think he deserves comfort. No woman should think she deserves comfort without obedience to his or her duties. Look at the order. Don't look for comfort. Don't expect comfort. Don't wonder why I don't have much comfort unless you have taken care of your duties of keeping his commandments. The remedy for fear is obedience. When you're afraid, when you're being tried, the most important thing you can do is to obey. These men were being tried. They were afraid. They were troubled. And what is the answer? Believe on me, verse 1, and other statements are made here about what they were supposed to do. Believe on him in verse 12. It says, but keep my commandments because it is pleasing God that brings his comfort. And so the order is, if you love me, obey me and I'll take care of you, is what Jesus is saying here. Our concern for the worries of life should be overwhelmed by our care for the duties of life. If we follow the conduct and counsel of the Holy Spirit, we will then have the Holy Spirit's comfort. If we follow his counsel and his conduct, the fruit of the Spirit that he wants from us. Disobedience grieves him. Disobedience quenches him, costing you. Disobedience gives the devil an advantage. Disobedience gives the devil an opening. Give no place to the devil. Ephesians chapter 4. Obedience brings more Holy Spirit power and causes the devil to flee away. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We're, we have this constant struggle of the devil on one side and the Holy Spirit on the other, and we give in to one or the other. And we can grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. That shuts his influence in our life down. We can open ourselves up to the advantages of the devil. Now, the things we think about, the things we view, the things we talk about, the people that we hang around with, what we do with our time, how well we keep the commandments of God. It either is feeding that new man and pleasing the Holy Spirit to give us power for holy living, or it's giving the devil an advantage in our lives and an opening. It's, it is nearly mathematical. It is so simple as to what happens to us, and it costs us. God the Holy Spirit is not grieving very hard in the sense that we think of grieving, but he is offended right. at us not giving him his proper place in our lives. Now think with me. Jesus started with these words when he gets to the Holy Ghost. You know, nothing about the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 14. Nothing much about the Holy Spirit in chapter 13. And you know that John 14, 15, and 16 are about the Holy Spirit. But this is where it starts. And look at the first verse. If you love me, right. keep my commandments, and I will do things. And listen, there's a lot of I will and he shall in these verses right here. Just look at, the, look at the next verse. We're not to it yet, but look. I will, he shall, he may. Now we're down to verse 17. Shall, he, he, dwell, he shall. Verse 18, I will not. Verse 18, I will. There's a lot of, God's doing a lot of things in verses 16, 17, and 18, but it's all predicated on verse 15, which is, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
We've spent lots of time on that before. I hope I've said enough right now to show you the context here. That when Jesus wants to comfort his apostles, and he wants to prepare them for the great work that he has for them to do over the next 30 to 50 years, depending on some of them didn't live nearly 30 years because they were murdered rather quickly. But the great work they had to do was to start with keeping my commandments. Because if you keep my commandments, men, I will come to you. I will dwell with you. My Father will come to you. We will manifest ourselves to you. We will be with you, inside you, and I will send another comforter who will never leave you, but it's all predicated on keep my commandments. Verse, I'm going to say it again. Verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, verse 24, verse 31 is keeping his commandments. And I want all of you to be comforted. Comfort is to strengthen a person and to inspirit them and excite them with positive hope, joy, and peace about living the Christian life. Jesus was able to do that. Those that love the Lord Jesus Christ love being with him. He lifted them up. It was wonderful to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was going to go away, but he was going to send another comforter. And so that brings us to the next verse. Verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Verse 16. I will pray the Father. Wow. I will pray the Father. Not quite yet at this moment, but he was going to soon, in the future, to then, pray the Father. A long time ago for us, he prayed the Father. Jesus as intercessor, which means praying for someone. Jesus as intercessor for his apostles and people would ask God for a divine replacement to himself. The future tense, I will pray, is correct. Jesus would pray the Father in just over 40 days. When he was at his right hand in heaven, having successfully died, buried, rose again, showed himself alive, ascended into heaven, was promoted and coronated, sat down, he then asked the Father for some spoils of victory because the Bible tells us the Holy Ghost was not given until Jesus was glorified in John chapter 7 and until he had ascended and sat down at the right hand of God in Acts chapter 2 by Peter's testimony. Jesus was still with the eleven. He was not yet glorified. Jesus would pray the Father in a few days, so his prayer wasn't until a few days later after this conversation. He sat down at God's right hand and began his work of intercession. Remember in the Bible, Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, for if we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more we shall be saved by his life. Because what he's going to do for us, he's going to pray for us. That's fantastic news that he's going to pray for us. After his glorious victory over sin and death, his father would answer any request of his. And he prays for us. Jesus told the apostles a few days after this particular conversation to wait in Jerusalem for this promise. That he was going to pray and the spirit was going to come. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And it was fulfilled in the next chapter on the day of Pentecost. Peter immediately announced this transfer of the Holy Spirit from God through Christ to them. 
Embrace our Lord's character. This is the Jesus of the Bible. Yes, he rides a white horse and has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and his garments and horse are dripping, dripping with the blood of his enemies. But the eleven are not his enemies, and you shouldn't be his enemies. And there is no fine line between his enemies and his saints. They are diametrically opposed to each other and can't stand each other. We are not talking about anyone that repudiates the Christian religion. They are the enemies of God. They have no favor with God or Jesus Christ at any time, except his natural kindness that he shows to the beasts of the field when he holds out his hand and feeds every living creature and supplies their needs. Every Christian sins. Every apostle sinned. Sin is not repudiation of the Christian religion. It's a total difference. He left us in the flesh. He knows we're going to sin. He knows we're tempted. He knows we're weak. But look at him. He prays for us. Amen. He prays for us. And I will pray the Father. He's talking to the eleven. Do you think the eleven could muster a decent prayer? When we get into the book of Acts, do the apostles pray decently? Would they pass in our church? I, I want to get your attention. Jesus didn't say, pray for yourselves. He says, I'll pray for you. Do you hear that? I'll pray for you. Our website gets daily requests for prayer. Let me just go ahead and tell you a secret about me. I get tired of them. I don't know why they don't pray for themselves. They don't even know me. They don't even know what I believe. They don't even tell me anything. But they want me to pray for them. Like it's the number of people praying that make a difference. Do you know what the Bible says? The effectual fervent prayer of churches all over the world praying for you will get the job done. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. We get daily prayer requests, and so I usually make mention of them and write them a short note and tell them that I made mention of them because they want many others praying for them. But this is Jesus, God's Son, praying for us. And that's what intercession is all about. Think. Think with me. A superlative one praying. Could anybody pray better than Jesus Christ? No. No. A superlative one praying to a superlative one able to answer by a superlative relationship. Does it help you? Jesus praying to God who's able... And he happens to be God's son. And he won the victory on the cross that the father wanted him to win. And so the father answers his prayers. Thank. Come to Hebrews 4 with me. Oh, Lord, help me right now. Lord, help me for them to see it so that I don't have to spend very much time here, but they can just get excited. Hebrews chapter 4. The Lord continues to wean us from the misuse of his Bible. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, 
but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.12 is the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the written word of God, the Bible. We get too excited about that so that Hebrews 4.12-16 becomes one of our scalping knives for small pill evangelism so that we can find someone, and that means 99% of Christians don't understand the verse. They love to quote it. They love to make their children memorize it, but they don't know what Hebrews 4.12 is about. The Bible isn't in Hebrews 4.12. It's not even a cousin to Hebrews 4.12. It's not even next door. It's in another county. Hebrews 4.12 is the living word of God, nothing changing there. But what is this passage here for of the five verses that I just read to you? Is this passage here because we are supposed to be terrified by this word of God that's our high priest because he wants to slam us with his sword and beat us up and discern all of our sinful thoughts and temptations and fantasies and crush us for it? Is it for mercy and grace? He knows our weaknesses. He can get right inside of us. No one else can get inside you. No one else knows you. Go ahead and bear your own pain because we can't help you. We'll try once in a while. But really, it's you got it inside you. But he can go inside you. And he's going to go inside you before we get out of John 14. But look at what it says about him going inside you. He's alive, he's powerful, he's sharper than a two-edged sword, that's better than a surgeon's scalpel, piercing to dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Now, you can't even divide your own soul and spirit, but he can. And of the joints and marrow, he's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. He knows what you're afraid of. He knows when you're troubled. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is him talking to you. There's nothing that is not manifest in his sight. Everything in your life is naked and open to him because he's your great high priest. It doesn't say he's a judge on a throne with a gavel ready to condemn you. He's not a monster on a leash with a club wanting to beat you. He's your great high priest. Was there another office in Israel that did the dirty work? Well, can you think of a word? If I give you the letter, will it help? I'll give you J. A judge. Is it a judge here or a priest? What does a priest do? He prays for you and makes peace with God for you. So it says in verse 14, seeing then, because of what verses 12 and 13 say, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Not because he's going to beat us, but because we have a great high priest better than anything the Old Testament had. For we have not an high priest which doesn't have a club. No, it doesn't say that. It says, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities because he gets right down to the soul and spirit level of us, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Boldly. Does that sound like we have a J office in this passage or a P office? 
a priest rather than a judge. Let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need because we have someone sitting there beside God who's the Lord Jesus Christ and he's a priest. He's a living word. He knows you inside and out. He can see every little thing inside you. Everything is naked and open to him. He knows all your trials and temptations. He knows all your physical infirmities. He knows everything about you. Okay, we, we make two errors with the passage. Number one, we just want to take somebody that doesn't know what, that Hebrews 4.12 is about Jesus Christ. They think it's about the Bible, and we want to show them that they're idiotic and we're smart. That's a poor use of it. You know, we'll use it, but we should use it gently, we should use it respectfully, and we should remember we're using it for one of its lesser values to us. Second is that we read the passage that he discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart and everything is naked and open to him is he knows my fantasies and he's about to crush me. Isn't that how you've used Psalm 139 in the past? Psalm 139, the Lord knows my down-sitting, my uprising. He knows every thought in my heart. He knows the words that are still in my tongue before they're even enunciated. We've looked at Psalm 139 and made it that God knows all the bad things about us because we want to make a monster out of him. He is a great and dreadful God, but he loves and preserves the way of his saints. He is a great enemy of his enemies. And there's a huge difference. He's the most incredibly merciful being. Amen. He doesn't tear Jerusalem down by the Romans until he had given them 500 years. Right. 500 years after Nebuchadnezzar. Then what did they have to do to be torn down to the ground? Torture and kill his son. When was the last time you tortured and killed Jesus? Well, it says in Hebrews 10... That if we sin willfully, after that we have received... You know what that is? You know what that passage is? Amen. That is repudiating Christianity and going back to animal blood instead of the blood of Jesus that you confess to at the Lord's Supper. Right. How, uh, how many in here have gone home and taken your dog, cut its throat, bled it out, and painted dog blood on your house because now you're putting your trust... Because now you're putting your trust in dog blood instead of the blood of Jesus Christ. This, a week ago, we had to read 1 Kings 3, if you, were, if you were following the one chapter a day program. 1 Kings 3 is where God appeared to Solomon in a vision and said, ask whatever you will. But you know, to even get to that vision that he got in Gibeon, what was he in Gibeon for? Because he was offering a thousand sacrifices in a high place. Whose ring was he wearing around his neck? When he went to Gibeon, to offer a thousand sacrifices in a high place. The daughter of Pharaoh. What's the A word that's in the first verse of 1 Kings 3? Affinity. He made affinity with Pharaoh, and their God is saying, anything you want. Was Pharaoh's daughter his first wife? Not a chance. No. He already had other wives of pagan kings. God is merciful. Amen. You want to go look through Hebrews 11? Is Noah in Hebrews 11? You want to blame Ham and Canaan for what happened? Why don't we blame Noah for getting drunk and being naked in his tent? Is Noah in Hebrews 11? Yeah. Is Samson in Hebrews 11? Samson? You have got to be kidding me. The hall of faith? What's he doing in Hebrews 11? 
Is Gideon in there? Jephthah? David? How many sins does David have? Listed in the Bible for us. About ten? Did David multiply wives to himself? Polygamy? Get so angry he was going to kill a bunch of, going to kill all of the, the men of Abigail's household? No, 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 it goes. He's a, great, he's a merciful heavenly father. Right. You see, but look at the way he treated Saul. Yeah, David and Saul are totally different. David sins, David confesses, David repents, and David does, does what is right again, and David wants to glorify God. This man over here was so profane, lazy, and good for nothing, didn't worship God. All he cared about was his stinking family, his stinking life, his throne, his crown, his job, and his money. He didn't give it. He didn't do anything. He was worthless. He was a rebel of God. Total difference. The point being right now, the Lord our God, the Jehovah of the Bible, did drown the earth with a flood. And that's what our young brother was referring to when he said he walked through the ark and rejoiced at the remembrance of God's holiness. Because he drowned the entire earth. But those were God-hating reprobates. We can't, we, we can't read one good thing about the other seven people on the ark. But they were on the ark because they had a decent father. The Bible says that. Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to just get excited about the mercy of God. And that Jesus is praying for you. And this passage, Hebrews 4, we make two errors on it. First, we just use it to show people they don't know their Bibles. And that's okay if we do it respectfully, kindly kindly and in its proper place and that we remember that's not why we have it the second reason way we'd look at it is that god knows everything and he knows my sins and he's about to smash me no he knows your sins he knows your trials he knows your temptations because he was tempted just like you are but he didn't sin so he's in heaven at the right hand of god praying for you Oh, yes, I wasn't in my chair all day yesterday morning. I was roaming around being excited about the Lord Amen. showing his mercy to me. Yes. I wanted to go through Hebrews 11 and show you the hall of faith. I mean, the, play, the, the chapter can be turned into the hall of shame right. with just a little bit of effort, but it's the hall of faith. The men had problems in there. Abraham's the father of the faithful. Who laughed first, Abraham or Sarah, when God said, you're going to have a son at the age of 100 when Sarah's 90? Who laughed first? Abraham did. Who laughed second? Well, that's pretty easy. Sarah laughed second. They're both in Hebrews 11. What little kind of love triangle did they work up to get their promised son? Lord, we can shortcut your whole system. Abraham, my Lord, Lord, why don't you go in and sleep with Hagar tonight? That'd make me really happy. Women, are you, are you with me? Why don't you go in and sleep with Hagar tonight, and we'll get a son out of her. She can give birth to it. I'll be her doula, and she can just birth that baby on my lap, and I'll pretend it's mine. And oh, what a, is that mixed up? Yeah. Is, is that woman in Hebrews 11? Yeah. Is that man in Hebrews? You know, what, what did he say? Yes, ma'am. I'm so, we don't find any fight from Abraham about that. No. But they're in Hebrews 11. 
These apostles that he's telling, I'm going to pray the Father. Were they all good boys? Is Peter about to deny him? It's incredible. Rejoice in our Savior. He knows where he's left us. We're a mess. But if you love me, keep my commandments, knowing that we're not going to keep them perfectly. Okay, I hope that helps you with Hebrews 4. Let's, let's come back to John chapter 14. I will pray the Father. <laughs> These are apostles. They should be able to pray for themselves. But I will pray the Father for you. Psalm 139. I thank you young men that have got up over the last few years and given the proper explanation of Psalm 139. God knows all about us. Wherever we are, we can't hide from him. He sees inside us. And all of that because it's all of his good favor toward us. And all of his thoughts toward us. It's not looking for some fault so that he can pound us. That is not in Psalm 139. It's an, it's an entirely different angle on the word of God. Lord, help us see it. It was a slideshow that I presented about three years ago where I tried to do a little bit of this. And it was entitled God Distortions. Because we're do you still believe you're depraved? Oh, yeah. We want to corrupt God and, and, and fit him into the, where we can't really trust him the way that we should. And the devil wants to help us do that. And of course the world does. And we just want to regather ourselves and look at this. I will pray the Father. As soon as I'm in a position where I have accomplished what he wants me to do, and I know I'll have his ear, and he will give me anything I ask for, I'm going to pray for you. So hold on, guys. If you love me, keep my commandments. I'm going to pray for you, and everything's going to be fine. I, will, I would never leave you comfortless, guys. Do you think I would just desert you guys? Is that what it says or not? That's what it says. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, what, what do you mean I will come to you? Well, when, I, when, he rise, when he rose from the dead after three days in the grave, he went to Galilee? No, that wasn't much comfort because he was only there for 40 days. When he comes in the great day of judgment, that's not the comfort of this context. What coming is it? It's coming through the Holy Ghost Amen. by way of the, the comfort that's mentioned right here, of course. The context makes it real easy for us. He shall give you another comforter. Another comforter is the Holy Spirit, God himself, to replace Jesus' personal presence with them. Jesus, just a few verses later, states the comforter is the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 26. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, just in case we're confused, 26 says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, because I'm going to pray for you and ask for him, and God's going to send him. God with us, God in us. I'm not going to leave you guys comfortless. Oh, I just want to keep saying it. Wow, Lord. Lord, you're wonderfully kind. Amen. You should just be able to give us three and a half years of doctrine and go to heaven and leave us down here because with the Bible and with the things you taught us, we have enough. He doesn't think so. It's not good for the man to be alone with my Bible. And my three and a half years of preaching. He needs me with him. I will come to you. I will not leave you comfortless. The foremost issue at stake for the apostles at this point was Jesus personally leaving. 
They had in many ways been safe with his far greater wisdom, his greater power, his greater prayers, and so forth. Thank God for this verse. Verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Just a a little sideline here. There's a oneness Pentecostal movement, and there's a oneness movement, and there's a Unitarian movement that's been around for a little while. The Pentecostals haven't been around for very long, but the Unitarians certainly have been. And they want to make Jesus, there is no God the Father, there is no God the Son, there is no God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is everything. There is no Trinity. We're a bunch of Catholic-worshipping idiots for having a Trinity. That's the oneness movement. Well, what does this verse say? I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter. Well, who's the first one? Jesus. Who's the second one? It can't be Jesus because it's another comforter. So now we've got a dual-natured Godhead at least. But we know the truth. But he's going to pray the Father for this other comforter. So there's a third there. Jesus praying, the Son praying, and the Father sending the Spirit, another comforter. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. I've been your comforter, men, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, which is God himself, and it's a him. Every time one of you men get up here in the pulpit and pray it, oh, I don't correct you until now. Don't pray for it. Pray for him. He's not an it. He's not a force. He's not a thing. It's God. It is no less God than God the Father. It's no less God than God the Word. It's the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to numerous places. These three chapters here in John tell us things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention about the Holy Spirit. I'll pray the Father, and he'll send you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Guys, I'm sorry that I've only been here for three and a half years with you. And I know we were just getting close. You were seeing my life. You were hearing my preaching. I had sent you out preaching. You had come back excited. We were getting close. And here I am leaving you. But don't worry. I'm going to give you another comforter. Instead of me being personally with you, God the Holy Spirit will be personally with you. And he will stay forever. He's not going to leave after three and a half years. He's not going to leave after three and a half centuries. He's not going to leave after three and a half millennia. He's going to stay forever. And we have him today. And he's in this room today. And he's in me today. And he's in our church today. The presence of God. And it's fantastic. What are you lonely about? Nobody else cares for you like the Lord Jesus Christ does. You don't need anybody else to pray for you like you need the Lord Jesus Christ to pray for you. Look at that. I'll pray the Father. Don't worry, guys. If you love me, go ahead and do your duty. Be good ministers. Keep my commandments. Whenever you fail, confess your sins. This is Psalm 89 if you need a passage of Scripture. And I'll forgive you. And I'll pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. My disciples... The comforter means to strengthen you morally or spiritually, to encourage you, to hearten you, to inspirit you, and to incite you. I want you to know that you're the sons of God. So I'm going to send God into your heart, Romans 5, 5, to shed abroad my love in your heart to know that you're the son of God. I'm going to send God to go inside you and tell you in your heart, Abba, Father. 
so that you'll cry, Abba, Father, because I'm telling you that you're a son of God inside. I'm going to send you the power of the Holy Ghost so that you can be filled with all joy, peace, and abounding hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. I am going to send you a power that works inside you so that you can do exceeding abundantly above anything that you can ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the comforter. A comforter is strength to be happy. Strength to do what is right. Strength to have joy in the Lord. David prayed, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation right alongside of, Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You say, but maybe he's taking it from me. It said he would abide forever. Then why did it say he was afraid of it taking it, taking him from David? Because that was the Old Testament. Are you a New Testament Christian with me? Amen. That was the Old Testament. David said that because he saw the spirit taken away from Saul. Saul never had the spirit in a meaningful way. Not that we know of. He just had the spirit to do a few things with them so that they would anoint the man. There wasn't anything commendable about him. So the Lord had him prophesy a couple times. So the Lord had enough courage that he would crawl out of the luggage and at least show up at his coronation late. He didn't even want to be crowned. He was pitiful. Not the New Testament, brethren. The New Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon men. It would, it would move them from time to time. It would, the, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit would move Samson from time to time, and he'd go do something big and ferocious. Or move Elijah. You know, then, then Elijah's sitting under a juniper tree asking for the Lord to kill him in 24 hours. Yep. You say, I can do that. Well, that's why the Bible says in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. That's very comforting. Very comforting. Our God is the God of all comfort, the Bible says, and he can give comfort you cannot even imagine. He can give peace that passes understanding. You can't even figure it out. I can't believe how peaceful I am. Did we hear some of that last night? I couldn't believe the peace. It was wonderful. Amen that he may abide with you forever. Jesus, the first comforter, was only with him for a little while, and then he had to go away. But now the Holy Spirit is here. You know, on the day of Pentecost, the men said to Peter after hearing his sermon, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So it extends down through family generations of time, and it extends geographically to us here in the Western Hemisphere because it says to them that are afar off, us Gentiles. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God to replace the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not even apostles, but we don't need to be. He dwells in us. He's the seal of God upon us. Boom, seal. I'm God's. That is mine. Jehovah has a J on me. Jehovah. Or J for Jesus. Jesus on me. I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit in me. You say, where's that in the Bible? Well, places like Ephesians and 2 Corinthians 5. Ephesians twice. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That were sealed by the Holy Ghost. 
and he's the earnest of our inheritance. Amen. The down payment, the performance bond, the surety guarantee that we shall be in heaven. Amen. The Spirit with us. Powerful. I'll pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, men, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit, God is truth. God is true. And his Spirit is true. And the spirit of truth is called the spirit of truth for several reasons right now. I'm just going to wrap this up because we want to get through these verses. I want you to look over at, uh, say, 16.13. John 16.13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, here's the same name for the Holy Spirit has come, he will guide you into all truth. So there's one reason why he's called the spirit of truth, because of what role he was going to have with the apostles, showing them all truth for them to be able to preach and write the New Testament. He brought all things to their remembrance, it says in verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, and the Father will send in my name, 1426, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Because they couldn't remember anything themselves, as we have found out in the first half of this chapter. But he's called the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because they're not born again, they have no sense of discernment or perception or vision of spiritual things the world cannot receive because they're the enemies of God. Who is the world? It's not Christians sinning once in a while. It's God-haters, evolution believers, Buddha belly rubbers. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. They don't know anything about the spirit of God. If we were to take some of these things we're talking about right now and go out on the street and pay and stop someone for a couple of minutes and talk about the Spirit of God, they wouldn't know what we're talking about. The world cannot receive them. The Spirit regenerates us to be saved from this world's God. There is, a, there is eternal enmity between this world and its God and us and our God. Thank you, Lord. The Spirit regenerates us to be saved from this world's God. The God of this world, we've been saved from him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. When the world curses our Lord Jesus Christ, it proves them void of the Spirit. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord and mean it and live like it, we prove the Spirit in us. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, same verse. Because it seeth him not, nor knoweth him. Seeing is believing, they say. Seeing is believing, and I haven't seen your God, so I don't believe. Well, you haven't seen your religion either, and that's evolution. Because you haven't seen it, but you believe it. They're just a bunch of liars. They're so confounded, be they that worship Darwin's species. Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. The world has no spiritual discernment. Right. And there's another spirit in the charismatic Pentecostal movement as well. They adore and worship the spirit which isn't taught anywhere. The Spirit directs all the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul warned in 2 Corinthians 11, and this is one of the faults that Baptists have because they look out there and they see the people that talk the most about the Spirit all messed up, not following the New Testament instruction for the Spirit. And so they say, well, we better be careful and not talk about the Spirit too much. And we don't want to do that. We want to talk about the Bible with the density and the distribution of truth that the Bible has. And so right now, it is, I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another comforter. Paul warned that there was another Jesus. There sure is. Roman Catholic Jesus, Armenian Jesus, there's another Jesus, there's another spirit. It's not the spirit of God. 
There's other spirits in the universe. And there's another gospel. There's another message. The other spirit is propagated by false apostles of Satan himself. All of that is taught in 2 Corinthians 11. And so they get infatuated with childish miracles, which there are none or next to none. And if they are some, they're probably by the power of the devil. But they're infatuated with their childish miracles. They stoop to the least gift, tongues, and they have to pervert it to gibberish and barking because they don't have the real gift of tongues that the apostles had. That gift went away in 40 years. It went away by 70 AD. There was no need for it anymore. It had already confirmed the ministries of the apostles so they could write the New Testament. It said that tongues would cease in 1 Corinthians 13. As soon as that which is perfect is coming, that was the scriptures. There weren't any tongues in the world until 1901. People didn't talk in tongues except a Quaker here or there or some other nutcase. They didn't. Nobody. Christians didn't talk and speak in tongues for 2,000 years. But you know, we, there we go. We get confused and off track from the comforter. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is comfort to strengthen someone and to excite them and incite them and move them and encourage them to do what is right and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that the presence of God is with us and to know that we are the sons of God. That's the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have it, it's your fault, not his fault. Because you got to love him and keep his commandments. Don't grieve him. Don't quench him. And he can speak to you. Last night's service should have spoke to you. If you were thinking about something else or wishing that it would end and you could go home, it's your fault you're so unhappy. If you would have embraced the conversions that we heard about, the Holy Spirit would have welled up inside of you. You'd have gone home and been nuts for a while. And I mean that in a good way that time. I'm using nuts a lot. The world can't receive the Spirit. and The charismatics mess it all up. Tongues, it's the easiest gift to fake. That's why they pick tongues. Why would you look at a list of the gifts in the church and the Bible very clearly lists them from the top? That's apostle. Apostle could do every single gift at any time he wanted to. All the way down, and the last gift that God ever gave the church was the gift of tongues. And that's the one that's emphasized today because it's the easiest one to fake. You can easily teach people to speak in tongues because all it is is gibberish. It's the easiest one to fake. If they had real miracle power of the Holy Spirit, they would visit a cancer ward and empty it. But they've never done that. They want to have a healing crusade where they can screen people three or four times before they ever get to the stage instead of going to a cancer ward. They teach their followers to crave an experience rather than fellowship with God. And that's where we've got to draw a line and say, no, we don't want that ditch. And we don't want the other Baptist ditch that ignores the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit for his comforting strength to give us joy and peace and assurance of eternal life and to know that God is with us and he forgives us and Jesus is praying for us and he's at the right hand of God. He's been tempted in all points like as we are, but we can go to God through him anytime we need help. And he expects us to need help because he knows what it was like to be in this world. But ye know him. It says in verse 17, The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him. The apostles, these eleven, knew the whole, about the Holy Spirit for two reasons. They had seen him in Jesus. They had seen the power through Jesus. Because as early as John chapter 3, we are told that Jesus had the spirit without measure. The second reason they already knew him to a certain degree 
is that they had the power of the Spirit for their own preaching and for their own miracles. Back there in Luke chapter um, 10, when they came back to Jesus and said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. And Jesus told them, don't get too excited about it. It's just a miracle. Get excited about this. Your name's written in the book of life. That's what he told them then. And they were apostles with apostolic gifts, let alone us. Our names being written in the book of life is fantastic. It's in writing. There's an equal chance of Jesus going to hell as there is for anyone that's ever believed on him. He is incomplete without us. He will not lose a single one. Our names are written in the book of life. And he's praying for you. Why can't you believe him? Trust him. Run to him. Credible. And this is what he says to his apostles who should have known all this already. But he said, and John wrote it down for us so that we could be comforted by it. Mm-hmm. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. You've seen him in me, and you've had the power yourself, and shall be in you. He's not quite in you yet. He's been around you. He's been on you. He's been in me, and you've seen him in me and through me, but you're about to get him inside you. And when they, when they got the Holy Spirit inside them, what's the word? I know it's a word game today. What's the word the Bible uses about the Spirit being in you instead of being on you or around you or with you? He's in you until you are, it's an F word, filled. You can't get filled when something's outside you. When you're filled, it's inside you. And how much is inside you? Enough. (laughs) A lot. You're filled. And they were filled. You know what it says in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Ghost came upon them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost. On them, in them, through them. And Peter blasted away immediately. And preached a fantastic sermon that we took a few weeks getting through. And thank you for mentioning that last night, young Matthew. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. Listen to those words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I know you're worried about me leaving because I said I was going away and that you can't come with me right now. But don't worry about that. I'm going to send another comforter, the personal presence of God to be with you. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm not going to leave you without strength. I'm not going to leave you without joy and peace and hope. I wouldn't do that to you. I guess the apostles were sort of like us. I think the Lord's forsaken me. Can you just look at those words and just enjoy them? I will not leave you comfortless. I won't take away the presence of God with you. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you weak. I'm not going to leave you discouraged. I wouldn't do that to you. Who do you think I am? I'm going to come to you. Why was he going away? He told them at the beginning of this chapter to prepare a place for them. Was it good he was going away? He said it was expedient that I go away for you. Things are going to get better if you'll just let me go away. Let me die for you. Be buried. Rise again. Get crowned in heaven. Sit down at God's right hand. Things are going to get better. I'm going to pray the Father. He's going to send you another comforter. That comforter is never going to leave you. That comforter is going to be the spirit of truth and fill you with truth and you're going to go out and turn the world upside down. You poor little uneducated fisherman. It was wonderful what the Holy Spirit did. Read this promise slowly enough for enough times to fully appreciate its preciousness. I will not leave you comfortless. That doesn't mean comfortable. 
The Apostle Paul wasn't comfortable in the Philippian dungeon, Philippi dungeon. But he was comforted. He was singing praises down there and praying loudly. All the prisoners heard him. Jesus died for you. He lives for you. He'll never desert you. You're the one that deserts him. Are you troubled in any way? Believe this dear promise of your Lord and Savior. Others will desert you. Others do not care for you like he does, but believe his promise. Out of sight, out of mind, is how you treat others. But that is not how Jesus treats his own. Out of sight, out of mind, not with the Lord, because we're never out of his sight. All things are naked and open. He sees inside us. He sees everything. So it's never out of sight, out of mind. And this is how the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to comfort his own apostles. He committed his life, his death, and now his life to your perpetual great happiness. If he died to save you from the justice and wrath of Almighty God, what of life's little speed bumps? We are his fullness. He's incomplete without us. Ephesians chapter 1. He can overwhelm your infirmities. A rich man was comfortless because he was a rebel. A greedy, selfish, miserly man. He went to hell where he belonged. Lazarus, the dogs licking his sores, was comforted. Does the Bible say he was comforted? Abraham said he was comforted. Job was comfortless. You're miserable comforters. He said in Job 16 too, but not Paul. Jesus stood with him. 2 Timothy 4, on trial before Caesar, the Lord stood with me. All men forsook me, the Lord stood with me. Judas was comfortless. He went out and hung himself, but not Deacon Stephen, even though he was being stoned. Jesus stood up at the right hand of God, and he saw him. He was comforted. Martyr makers are comfortless. In Revelation chapter 6, those that make martyrs call for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of God. But where are their martyrs? Under the altar of God. Oh, brethren, if you're thirsty for comfort, then run to Jesus Christ for the Spirit of God. Run to Christ and ask him for more of his Holy Spirit. I preached to you just a few months ago on a Wednesday evening with slides showing you that in the book of Ephesians, if you want to know more about the ministries of the Holy Spirit, it's the book of Ephesians. There's two references to the Spirit in each chapter. That's six times two is 12. It's unprecedented in the New Testament. And it shows that that church that Paul had been the pastor of for two and a half years, we start with chapter one, it's all about election. We go to chapter two and it's about regeneration. But through those chapters, we see other levels and ministries of the Holy Spirit that Paul was still praying for his church to get because there's additional levels and higher ground that can be reached with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In your prayers, make sure that we ask for more of the Holy Spirit. He is the presence of Jesus Christ with us, in us, dwelling forever. Confess your sins. Keep his commandments. He knows you're going to fail. When you fail, confess them. And he'll be there. Jesus Christ in you by his Spirit. I will come to you. And he comes to us by the Spirit. John 14. If you love me, men, keep my commandments. Church, if you love Jesus Christ, keep his commandments. He'll pray the Father. That's now past tense. He prayed 
2,000 years ago when he sat down at God's right hand and God gave him the answer to his prayer request and he gave the Holy Spirit to the church. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. It's 2,000 years old. I prayed the Father, and he gave you another comforter, and he'll abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. And so you're not going to read about him in the newspaper. You're not going to see about him on Sports Center. You're not going to find him anywhere outside our church, the Word of God, or prayer. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. He's going to go on and explain it even more. The Father will come to you. We'll both dwell with you. We'll manifest ourselves to you. Judas is going to ask, not Iscariot, Lord, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Oh, here's how we'll do it. And and Jesus explains it in the verses that are coming up. Power. Power of the Holy Ghost. There's a power that works in us. Sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. What music goes in your ears. If you want to let worldly music in your ears, the Holy Spirit is offended, you're unhappy. What comes out of your mouth? Is it the proper speech or wrong speech that offends the Holy Spirit? You're unhappy. You have no power. You're discouraged. You don't have to be perfect. There's never been a perfect Christian. The Bible has filled, has filled its pages with God's favorites who were very imperfect. But they knew how to confess their sins, repent, go forward, and have the blessing of the Holy Spirit with them. These are wonderful, wonderful verses. They deserve a whole lot better than I just gave them. But I hope that you can read them and the Holy Spirit himself will make them come alive to you and you'll appreciate some of the statements of Jesus praying the Father for you, another comforter to replace him, to be with you forever. No one, The world can't have him, but you can have him. He's going to be in you. The Lord wouldn't ever leave you comfortless, right. and he's going to come to you. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.